Last weekend, we began our series on prayer. And just curious, how many people feel like you are just killing it in prayer? Like you just, you wake up, you just cannot wait to get into prayer. You live all day long in prayer. Raise your hand. Who feels like you're varsity in prayer? Anyone? Okay. That's kind of what I thought. The reality is very few of us feel like we are excelling in prayer. In fact, I would estimate that in all of human history, there has never been less prayer than today. And there are numerous reasons why. One, we have so much wealth. We have more money and comfort than arguably any time in any past generation. And so why pray when you have a good job and health insurance and a 401k? Right? In, in our minds, money can do most everything that prayer can do, and so we just don't pray. Another reason we don't pray is because we have so little time. Because we have so much money, we're constantly out doing things, buying things, spending, 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 which means only we have to work more to fund our lifestyle. And so our daily conversation sounds like, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm just really, what? Busy. We're too busy, and so we don't pray. But, you know, I think the biggest reason, at least one of the biggest reasons why it's so hard to pray and why we pray so little is this right here. Listen, there are multinational industries spending billions of dollars for two things, your attention to this and hopefully your addiction to this. Have you ever wondered why Facebook and Instagram are multi-billion dollar industries and companies and yet it's free to you? It's because, loved one, you're not the customer, you're the product. They're selling your time and they're selling your attention. You see, loved ones, if prayer is essentially giving our time and our attention to God, then it has never been harder to pray. And so this morning, we're going to talk about our relationship with our phones and our TVs and our computers and all tech. And here's what just happened. I saw it on your face. Everyone just got ready for a guilt trip, okay? <laughs> this is not going to be a guilt trip. But first, isn't it funny that all I have to do is say phone and we're all like, yeah, I know, <laughs> right? It's just we know there's something unhealthy there. But this is not going to be a guilt trip. God's not into shaming. Listen, he's into satisfying. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. God is not against you. He is all in on you. He is for you. And so today, he's not going after your screen. He's going after your soul. So we are safe and secure in Christ. Just breathe and let's talk tech. Do we have any 26-year-olds in the room? Raise your hand. Are any 26? Yeah, we got some 26-year-olds. All right. When you were born, there were 600 websites, like in the entire universe. <laughs> like, you say, I scroll 600 sites a day. I know, man. In the 90s, you could scroll the entire interweb while on the toilet. Like, there just wasn't a lot of scrolling in the 90s. How about 24-year-olds uh, in the room? Raise your hand. Any 24-year-olds? Okay. 24-year-olds, uh, laptops became a thing when you were born. 
And it blew people's minds. People were like, wait, so I can take this, like, with me? And, I mean, it was huge, right? It looked like you were looting Best Buy. But you could take your computer home with you. It was amazing. It was a game changer. How about 23-year-olds? Raise your hand. 23-year-olds. All right. We got a lot of 23-year-olds. Um, so this crazy new thing called email showed up the year you did. And people were like, wait, so I can type this. It goes up to space. Then it goes to my friend. Like, how many weeks does it take? Do I have to pay postage, right? We just didn't have a category for email. How about 21-year-olds? Any 21-year-olds? All right, all right. Um, you were born the same year Google was. So think about this. Before you came onto the scene, no one had ever Googled before. People thought that was like a sin. They're like, we don't Google in our house, right? Like, <laughs> no one had ever Googled before you. And then the tech revolution of Simi Valley just exploded. Uh, Facebook came on the scene 2004, YouTube 2005, Twitter 2006, Instagram 2010. Uh, the word selfie, now just common language, was invented 2013. Um, 13 years ago, maybe the biggest thing, 2007, the iPhone came on the scene. So in 2004, 45% of teenagers owned a cell phone of some kind. Uh, today, over 95% do. Almost all of us do. A and the crazy thing is we feel naked without it. Anyone with me on that? You ever forget your phone? Something You're like, what do I do, right? I'm just, I'm out here in the elements. I, I, like, <laughs> it's crazy. Now feel this, though. Within the last decade, we have moved from what is an internet to 75% of people feeling panicked if they forget their phone at home. Like, that's how humans have existed always. And we're like, we feel like we're missing an arm if we don't have something that humans have never had until about 10 years ago. Just feel, guys, how central it has become to our existence. And so is this the part where I trash technology? Like, is this the part where I say, you know, let's go back to the good old days when we printed out the maps? You guys remember that? And you forgot them sometimes on the counter and you're just out there, you know? And if you break down, like, sorry, bro. You get, like, no, I'm not. There are glorious upsides to technology. One, information. So the 12-year-old the twelve, the, the 12 in the bush of Africa with a phone has more information in his pocket than Bill Clinton ever had as the president of the United States. All of us have access to all the information. It's a miracle. Like, literally, it's a miracle. Another upside is connection. So I can, I can um, FaceTime with friends and pastors, and we can pray together, and we can encourage one another. And the, the common grace God has given to all of us through technology is immeasurable. So this sermon is not about our access to technology. It's about our technology's access to us. You see, because technology can be used at any moment, it has hijacked every moment. The vast majority of Americans say checking their phone is the first thing they do when they wake up and the last thing they do before they fall asleep. So for the last 10,000 years, 
the first thing you'd see when you woke up and the last thing you'd see before you go to bed if you're married was your spouse. And in the last 10 years, we've traded those most intimate moments with our spouse for our screens. It's not about your access to technology, but technology's access to you. And just a word on the benefits, even though we have more access to information, we're actually, we're not getting smarter. Microsoft did a study in the 90s and found that the average human attention span was 12 seconds. By 2013, it was down to eight seconds. Uh, for reference, the attention span of a goldfish is nine seconds. And despite all the connection made possible by tech, we're, we're actually not becoming a more connected people. Since the invention of the iPhone, the number of high school kids hanging out with their friends daily has dropped 40%. Last year, the amount of high school seniors who went on a date was 50%. That's down from 89% a generation ago. Well, it's just the teenagers, right? Well, maybe the saddest statistic I saw this week preparing for this message was only half of American adults report to having a meaningful social interaction on a daily basis. Feel that. Half of us, five out of ten of us, are saying they're having a meaningful social interaction on a daily basis. What are we doing? We're, we're on our phones. Okay, so why spend all this time on the stats? Get to the Bible, man, right? That's what I would say. Get to the Bible. Because, here's why. Because we're, this spring, we're striving to be a praying church. And, and I can preach all the sermons on prayer, and we can talk about prayer, but, but we'll never actually be people of prayer if we don't have the margin to pray. You see, prayer is not an add-on to your busy life. Prayer is an alternative to your busy life. Prayer is not another thing to do. It's a different way to live. And we can't make prayer a priority until we make room for prayer. So, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, how many billions of prayers have been lost to the iPhone? I pray right now, not through statistics, but through the scripture, you would compel us to pray. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew chapter 3. If I were to ask you, what was the most defining moment of Jesus' life, what would you say? Most people say the cross. I'd say Matthew chapter 3 was the most defining moment of Jesus' life. It's when the Father defined him. That means spoke his identity over him at his baptism. See it in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. This here, guys, this is the word of God. Everything else will fail, but this, this won't. Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, and I just think about this, 
a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Wow. If you heard the audible voice of God speak approval and identity over over you like that, what would be the first thing you would do? Probably not the first thing that Jesus does. Look at it in the next verse. Matthew 4, 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, the first thing Jesus did was he went to the wilderness. Now, this word translated wilderness here is is Aramis. And I only say that because we're going to go back to it a lot this morning. Aramis is translated desert or desolate place or lonely place, or my favorite, quiet place. And up until recently, just a side note, you guys, most of this message was pulled from a new book called uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Get that book. Like that book is, anything profound in this message is from that book. Anything you need clarity on, come up afterwards, that's for me, okay? Um, anyway, so I was reading this book, and he pointed out this, and it's so profound, um, you know, I always read this book and, or this chapter and I thought, isn't that just like the devil? You know, to come at you when you're alone and you're weak and you're, you're hangry. Like, isn't that just... But when you actually study Jesus' relationship with the wilderness, the, the Aramis, you learn that the wilderness, the quiet place, is not a place of weakness. It's Jesus' place of strength. Look back at Matthew 4.2. It says this, and after fasting 40 days. Why after 40 days? Wasn't Jesus hungry after 20? I would have been. What about 30 days? Why, why, why after 40 days? God allowed the devil to tempt Jesus after 40 days, not because that's when Jesus was most weak and vulnerable, but because after a month and a half of praying and fasting in the quiet place, Jesus was now strong enough to withstand even Satan himself. You see, the quiet place is not a place of weakness. It is the place of spiritual strength. And it's why Jesus goes back to it over and over and over again. Turn over to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This is Jesus' first day on the job as Messiah. As Josh Denning would say, it's a marathon Monday. It's just one of those days that's just jam-packed. So Jesus gets up early, Mark chapter 1. He teaches in the synagogue. He begins healing people, including Peter's mother-in-law, who is healed so decisively that she gets up and makes them lunch. And then late into the night, he continues healing people and casting out demons. And finally, Jesus gets to go to bed. Okay, awesome. Got through the day. Praise the Lord. Going to bed. Now look at Mark 1.35. Mark 1.35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, that's Aramis, and there he prayed. So just to clarify, Jesus was out in the quiet place for a month and a half, came back to Capernaum for one day of ministry, and then immediately gets up very early to get back to the quiet place. For Jesus, when he was tired, unlike us, he didn't sleep in. 
He got up earlier to get to the quiet place with God because that was the place Jesus found his strength. And then look back at the next verse, Mark 1, 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Just note, when Jesus went into the quiet place and got alone with God, not only did he receive strength, he received clarity on exactly who he was and what he was here to do. Turn a couple pages to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, here the disciples are just flat out exhausted. Apparently they've been so busy, so many people are coming that they, they haven't even had time to eat. Anyone ever been there? Mom is in the house? Yeah, just no time even to eat. Yeah, so everyone's overworked, overtired, underfed. I'm guessing not a lot of happy campers in this band. And listen to what Jesus tells them in Mark 6, 31. Mark 6, 31, Jesus says, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place, Aramis, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place, Aramis, by themselves. See, when Jesus saw that his followers were exhausted and tired and hungry, he didn't say, you know what, it's been a good day. Let's just kind of call a little early, throw in a movie. He said, no, 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 come with me. Let's go get alone. Unfortunately, look at the next verse, Mark 6, 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them. Uh-oh. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. You know, sometimes we have every intention of getting some alone time with the Lord and then kids blow it up or your roommate wakes up or you get a text that completely derails everything. But, but Jesus doesn't respond in frustration. Look at verse 34. When he went to the shore, he saw a great crowd and he had, what's that word? compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began teaching them many things this is for all of us but maybe just a word to parents here especially what if like jesus we were clothed with compassion whenever our kids wake up what what might we teach about our kids and the heart of god if every day they woke up no matter what time we were happy to see them. Vertical Church, what if, what if we saw all interruptions as God-given moments to teach? We might just see revival. Our kids might just fall in love with Jesus. Back to Mark 6. Mark 6, Jesus just took five loaves, two fish, fed 5,000 people. Can we just agree that that that's a pretty good day. Like if, if you've done that, maybe you can call it a little early. He, he doesn't do that. He doesn't go and veg out. Mark 6, verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. So Jesus just fed 5,000. Now he's about to walk on the water. This just seems like a really weird time for a little personal prayer time. You know, 
unless his personal prayer time is how he plugged into his power, then it makes complete sense. Then the timing totally makes sense. One more, turn over to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, Jesus just cleansed a leper. And so obviously news is getting out. People want to see this Jesus. And in Luke 5.15, it says this. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So think about that. So many people to talk to, so many things to do, so many people to heal, so many things to teach. But look at the very next line, Luke 5, 16. But he withdrew to desolate places, Aramis, and prayed. The book of Luke talks about this Aramis nine different times. And if you read Luke, you will see the busier Jesus gets, the more he withdraws into this quiet place. Now, for us, it's just the opposite, right? When life gets busy, the first thing to go is our quiet time with Jesus. And, and before your inner lawyer lets you off the hook here, you know, I'm, I'm not a morning person. My kids get up early. I have roommates. I have to be at work early. No excuses. I'm just a big fan of sleep. Like, before you let yourself off the hook here, just feel this. God in flesh needed quiet time. Like, God needed time with God. Feel that. All of this passage, all of these passages bring us to this obvious conclusion, point one, to prioritize prayer, I must prioritize silence. Augustine said, entering silence is entering joy. Now, when we talk about silence, we're talking about it in, in two dimensions, external silence and internal. So the first is external. That means uh, turning off phones, computers, TVs, just the, the external noise. In the screw tape letters, the demons call silence a danger to their cause. In fact, screw tape, the, the senior demon, calls Satan's realm the kingdom of noise and says, we must make the whole universe a noise in the end. Wow. See, C.S. Lewis knew. He knew spiritual flourishing and constant noise cannot coexist. And he died in the 60s. I mean, have you ever noticed your impulse for noise, anything? For me, I, I hop in the car, boom, radio. Right, I start, I start on a walk, podcast, open up my computer, background music, go to the gym, workout music, right? And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But why am I so eager to flee silence? That's the question. It could be the devil's fault. I think more often, at least in my own life, it's to drown out the internal noise. Right? All the anxious thoughts, all of the fears just bubbling inside, all of our lusts, all of our fantasies, all of our sins, all of our angers, all of the sadness, all the doubt, we know we can't just turn this stuff off. I took a personality test when I was training for church planting, and they said, Chris, you cannot plant a church because 
uh, you have the highest self-critical voice we've ever seen. And they said, you, you can't turn off that voice. You have to replace it with something. And they were saying, of course, the word of God, right? But I don't think I'm alone there. I think we all have a lot of internal noise. And so we, we distract ourselves to death. We go to the screen. But Jesus has given us a better way. He's saying, don't go to the screen. Come to solitude. You see, we enter silence only through solitude. Point two, to prioritize prayer. I must prioritize solitude. Now, don't confuse solitude with isolation. They're actually polar opposites. Solitude is engaging with God. Isolation is escaping from God. Okay? Solitude is leaning in. Isolation is pulling away. Solitude is pursuing Christ. Isolation is pursuing comfort. Solitude takes discipline. Isolation is as natural as breathing. You see, solitude is not about getting alone. Solitude is about getting alone with God. So he can silence all the noise, external and internal, and you can hear just his voice speaking that Matthew 3 identity and purpose over you. Loved ones, for us to become people of prayer and take hold of everything that God has for us in prayer, we must regularly spend time entering silence and solitude. Our relationship with God is just that. It's a relationship. Like any other relationship, it takes time together. And some people say, well, I I don't need quiet time, man. I talk to God all day. Okay, awesome. Do that. Never stop doing that. I talk to my wife all week long, and yet who's always in the room? Our little kids. And we love our kids, but we need regular, we had it last night. Thank you, Hannah. We had regular, uh, scheduled, set-apart time where it's just us two. Why? Because we can hear each other better when we're alone. That's when we get to open up each other's hearts. That's when we get to dream together. That's when we get to cry together. That's when we get to connect and commune in covenant relationship. And the same is true with our relationship with God. I hear a lot of people say, yeah, I just, you know, I I pray on my way to work. Again, amazing. Pray, keep praying on your way to work. But if you talked to your closest loved one only while you were driving, how satisfying of a relationship would that be really? Like, how close would you be, really, if you only called them while you're driving? They say children spell love, T-I-M-E, right? It's cheesy, but it's true. And if it's true for children, it's true for children of God. If you want to enter into vibrant, thriving, life-giving, flourishing, dynamic relationship with Jesus, it just takes time together alone. Now, for those of us with the religious bent, this is not a salvation issue, okay? So if you're feeling condemnation, that is not from the Lord. This is not a salvation issue. In fact, this isn't about God at all. It's about you. 
This isn't God saying, if you want to be saved, come spend time with me. This is God saying, I saved you, but more than that, hey, I love you. So come spend time with me. I can do more than just take away your sin. I can take away your burdens and your fears and your troubles and your concerns, and I can give too. Do you know that? I can give love and life and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment. So never feel obligated to go spend time with Jesus like he needs it. He's satisfied in the triune Godhead. You need it, and I need it. So it's not about salvation. So what happens if I don't make getting quiet time with Jesus a regular rhythm in my life? If we don't make silence and solitude a priority, one, we will feel distant from God. Every time someone asks you, how you doing, man? You're going to say, I'm kind of in a dry season right now. And you're going to say that for about 10 years until you just give it all up. You're going to feel distant from God. The next thing is you're going to feel distant from ourselves. We lose track of our identity and purpose. And there's so much going on inside of us. We just won't know what to do with it or why it's happening if we don't spend regular time with God. So we'll, we'll feel distant from God. We'll feel distant from ourselves. All kinds of stuff will be happening in us, but we'll never really know why or what to do about it. Three, we're going we're gonna to find ourselves needing to experience God secondhand. So, so we're always going to feel like there's a, another podcast to listen to, another sermon to listen to. I got to read another article. I got to read another book. And your relationship with God will always be secondhand and siphoned from someone else's relationship with God. Four, because that's not fulfilling, you're going to find yourself drained. Our new norm will become just constant, low-grade spiritual exhaustion. We'll lag through our days. We'll get through church. We'll drink more coffee. Once in a while, you're going to find rest for your bodies, but never any for your soul. You do that long enough. Five, we're going to turn to our escape, whatever your favorite one is. Food, pornography, a relationship, working out, social media, Netflix. And then six, you're going to find yourself emotionally and spiritually unhealthy. We're going to overreact, and we're going to underreact. Anything could set us off or shut us down. We're going to get defensive. We're going to sulk. We're going to get angry. We're going to go to bed. We're going to wake up, and we're going to do it again. That's option one. Or, and this is why we came to church this morning, we can follow Jesus. And he's leading us to the quiet place. Let's just get really practical, really practical here. What does it look like to follow Jesus into the quiet place? One, you guys, let's not overthink it. Pick a place. Your favorite chair by the window, maybe a little nook in the house, maybe once it gets warm, a park down the street, maybe even splurge, splurge a little bit, get some candles, your favorite coffee, your favorite tea on hand, just set the room just right, and then turn off everything. You're entering the presence of God. Two, pick a time. 
and take your time. Sometimes you might only need 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes you're probably going to need an hour or two. But it doesn't matter. You're not watching the clock. You're watching for Jesus. Okay? And side note, just start where you are, not where you want to be. Just this week, just start where you are. There's no pass or fail here. Okay? So if it's three minutes, if it's five minutes, and then you get bored, it's okay. God's, not judge, God's judgment is not based on your quiet time. So just start where you are. And I can tell you this, you're going to start with three minutes, five minutes. It's not going to be enough for long. So know this. Every time you do, I have to preach this to myself every time I do quiet time. This is not a pass or fail. This is not for performance. This is for me getting satisfied by our satisfying God. So just go in there in full grace, in full acceptance, in beautiful, warm relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Next, give yourself permission to be honest, and I mean really honest. None of these watered-down church phrases tell the Lord exactly how you're feeling, the good, the bad, and the downright gross. Tell him about your day, Tell him about your worries. Tell him your desires. Tell him your lack of desires, especially for him. Tell him about your fantasies and the lies you're believing and the sins that you're hungering for. Just lay it all out there. I promise you, it will not be a surprise to him. And then lastly, listen. Sit in silence. Rest in solitude. Quiet your heart. And then pick up your Bible and don't read it as the Bible. Read it as God's personal letters to you, child of God. Might be a chapter. Maybe it's just a verse. And if you do that, do you know what God promises you? John 6, 63. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Listen, God promises you life when you read his words. You see, Vertical Church, Jesus is not going after our screens. He is going after our souls because he loves us. He's eager to give us life, and to do that, he's calling us out into the quiet place, the place of silence and solitude. Let me invite Garrett up. Side note here, this is, this is nothing unique. This is how God has always loved his people. Think about it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Hosea, the nation of Israel. Whenever God wanted to get a hold of someone, he drew them out to the wilderness, to the Aramis, to the quiet place. Why? So he can tell them, I love you just so you can feel the wonderful warmth of communion with Christ. You know, guys, I think a lot of us have just forgotten the sound of the voice of God. And maybe that's why we hear so much condemnation and so much disappointment and frustration because you're projecting maybe someone else's voice onto God. Do not hear the voice of condemnation. Hear the voice today of Jesus calling you home. 
to come and to just let your Father love you and care for you. He's calling us, Vertical Church, this spring out into the quiet place. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. It was an island populated by cannibals. And if you read his biography, it's, it's crazy. Like, it's like an action movie. There's people throwing axes at him. Uh, he's getting hunted down by cannibals. And there's this moment in his autobiography where the villagers come, they burn his house down. Miraculously, he gets away, he climbs up a tree, and he's just sitting there with God in the quiet place cannibals hunting him below and years later he reflected back and he wrote this quote I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush the hours I spent there lived before me as if it were but yesterday I heard the frequent discharge of muskets and the yells of the savages yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, but not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul alone in the bush, in the midnight, in the very embrace of death, do you have a friend who will not fail you then? Vertical Church, we do. His name is Jesus. And he speaks loudest in the silence. And we are least alone in the solitude. This week, James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's pray.